Thanks for joining us this week, and welcome to Mutuality Matters, a weekly podcast hosted by CBE International, where our mission is to promote the biblical message that God calls women and men of all cultures, races, and classes to share authority equally in service and leadership in the home, church, and world. Enjoying the podcast? Let us know. Send a recording or written testimonial to podcast at cbeinternational.org of why Mutuality Matters matters to you, and we may feature you on an upcoming episode. Welcome, everyone. My name is Erin Moniz, and I'm here with my co-host, Blake Dean, and you are listening to New Voices of Mutuality Matters, hosted by CBE International. Today, we are bringing you a special episode of Mutuality Matters that is highlighting CBE's new publication called Created to Thrive, which brings together the voices of experts and faith leaders to tackle topics related to abuse. Specifically designed to equip pastors and church leaders, uh, this we are very excited uh, about this publication. We're excited to introduce to you two of the contributors that we have here today, um, and we want to give you a little bit more information on them. So I will start by first introducing Rebecca Kotz, is a advocate, speaker, community organizer, activist, liberation educator, consultant, and writer on sexual politics and feminism. She has worked at various social change and anti-violence organizations in Minnesota. She founded and facilitates a program for convicted male offenders, uh, men accountable for sexual exploitation. And she is currently finishing her master's degree in social justice at Prescott College in Arizona. And you can find more of her work at her website, RebeccaConst.com, and we'll be sure to link to that in the show notes. And we also have Annette Altmans with us, who is the founder and chairman of the board of directors of the MEND Project. She is a philanthropist and passionate human rights advocate. She is a survivor, and Annette's personal experiences of recovery and extensive field research into the topics of original abuse and double abuse ignited Annette's passion to found the MEND Project in 2016. She conceptualized the term double abuse, which we'll be talking about today, which names the behaviors causing complex trauma to victims and survivors. In addition to this work, she serves on the board of Pepperdine University's Boone Center for the Family and is the trustee of North Rise University in Zambia. Her writing on the topics of abuse, domestic violence, and bullying has been published in AACC, Teen Vogue, OC Register, and other publications. We are so excited to have you both with us today. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. So we like to begin with a little icebreaker called Watch, Read, or Listen, where we talk about what we're watching, reading, and listening to, mostly because we need recommendations from other people. (laughs) So Erin, what are you watching, reading, and or listening to? Okay, Blake Jean, today I have a TV show that my husband and I just started watching called The Bear. Maybe just Bear. I don't know if it has the definite article the in front of it. But okay, The Bear. And it's it's a TV show about um, a restaurateur who is also a chef and a cook in this um, restaurant in Chicago. And what's interesting is it was recommended to us by a friend who also works in that profession. And he said it's one of the most realistic depictions of wow. that type of life that he's ever seen. So we started watching it, really like the characters. Um, It's not for maybe like little people in small ears because of the language involved. But uh, if if you're of the older adult persuasion, it's it's worth checking out. (laughs) What about you, Blake Dean? Um, I also come today bearing a television show, um, which is Severance. 
um, which mm-hmm. is a kind of like modern, like kind of sci-fi, but not really sci-fi about um, a tech company who develops what they claim to be the perfect work-life balance where you can undergo a procedure where your brain um, is modified. So when you're at work, you don't have no relationship to your personal life. When you're in your personal life, you have no relationship to your work. And as Mm. one may expect with commitments to theological anthropology, that goes horribly wrong. (laughs) And it's very interesting (laughs) and very good. Rebecca, what are you watching, reading, and or listening to? I just finished a book. Um, It's called We Do This Till We Free Us um, on Abolition Organizing and Transformative Justice. Um, And that was kind of the... Some of the focus of the research I had done for my master's thesis and because I'm a nerd and I can't stop reading, um, I just keep reading the same types of things, even though I should be relieved that I'm done with the program. But um, this is such an incredible book that really looks at how do we stop violence at the root, um, which is very much kind of what our conversation is about today. So. Yeah, well, well, that brings the cultural level of this segment up, (laughs) certainly from where we were. So awesome. Thank you. What about you, Annette? Um, Well, I just just finished reading for the second time, No Visible Bruises. I can't Mm -hmm. remember the author's name, but um, I'm just really intrigued by how she goes into um, strangulation and and how there really needs to be follow-up protocols. So I've been going down the rabbit trail of what different um, cities or counties in my state are treating strangulation cases um, and if they're following the protocols or if they're not. And then for fun, because the topic that I'm always studying is so heavy, I like to watch um, really light TV, like those home repo shows where there's a beginning. There's a middle and there's a happy ending (laughs) all in a tight 30 minutes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And it's, it's slam bam over and done. And then I like to listen to a lot of podcasts, victim stories, back to the serious stuff again. Yeah. Uh, That's kind of what I do. I love it. Wonderful. In my spare time. (laughs) Besides playing pickleball and other physical activities. Oh gosh. Oh yes. Our guests always put us to shame with like how well read and how, how well-rounded you guys are. So congratulations. So thank you for sharing those uh, with us. Um, Our listeners uh, will not be surprised at all by some of our, our contributions. Um, But we would love to get into the, the discussion about, about your studies and about uh, both of you contributed two chapters to the book created to thrive. And um, we want to start with a question for both of you. Um, Since you both have chapters on forms of abuse that are um, underrepresented in our imaginations of, quote, what abuse looks like. Um, Annette, yours on covert emotional abuse, and Rebecca, yours on um, marriage, dating, partner, ex, sexual violence. Um, Would you each give kind of a broad overview of these forms of abuse and why they're not widely understood? Should I go first? Oh, feel free, Annette, yes. Okay. Well, um, don't feel bad that it's not widely understood because many victims and the general public, as well as professional therapists and pastors do not understand that covert emotional abuse is highly traumatizing and it's the common thread in all relational abuse cases. In fact, many professionals don't understand that emotional abuse is a form of domestic violence. Mm -hmm. And 
Covert emotional abuse is a form of domestic violence, but it's really difficult to uncover. Mm -hmm. So if you think about the power and control will, you'll see some forms of covert emotional abuse, um, but they are a little bit confusing because they either use really extreme examples like, um, you know, killing your pets, which does happen, but it's not most common. And or it's its examples are rather vague. Mm -hmm. And so what we do at the men project is we we broke down um, many covert emotionally abusive behaviors and gave them terms and definitions to describe them because covert emotional abuse is the hidden manipulative tactics that are hard to identify hard to describe and therefore nearly impossible for a victim to confront or resolve and if if i have just another couple of minutes i'd love to um say so covert emotional abusive tactics are behaviors such as blame shifting gaslighting Mm -hmm. minimizing deflections and many other defensive tactics meant to stonewall the victim's authentic efforts for a meaningful conversation Mm -hmm. so um the victim is blocked she might raise a reasonable complaint or concern and the defensiveness the, the desire to shut down the victim by the abuser um, is, is the motive. And so the victim all of a sudden is so confused and isn't able to figure out what just happened. If the abuser only used the tactic of lying and the victim could then see the repeated pattern of lying, my, yeah. my partner lies to me, I cannot mm. trust him. But when there's in one conversation, if there's blame shifting, um, deflection, stonewalling, minimization, you know, there's so many other catastrophizing, yeah. black and white thinking, there's so many behaviors. When they're all employed, the victim doesn't even remember what yeah. started the argument. There's so many twists and turns. And the stress of unresolved issues and the stress of being confused mm-hmm. so often leads to these um, trauma states where. Um, maybe post-traumatic stress disorder is what she's um, develops or prolonged post-traumatic stress then leads to um, physiological illnesses where you know her autoimmune system is failing and she's she she needs medical attention but the physicians can't quite figure out the origin other than stress and so it's really a serious it's like living in a maze where there's there's all these dead ends and there's only a healthy conversation if a maze is a conversation a healthy one would be where you have mutual respect mutual desire to listen and understand and you move through to solutions but Mm -hmm. that doesn't happen rarely if at all if ever for a victim of covert emotional abuse Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you so much yeah. for for sharing that. That's it, that's outlined beautifully. And Rebecca, we'd love to hear same from you. A, a broad overview of the forms of abuse you write about and why they're not widely understood. Yeah. I think along with you know some of the emotional, verbal, and psychological abuse that Annette just covered, um, sexual abuse within intimate relationships. Both of these different types mm-hmm. of abuse are so normalized. Um, And I think Mm -hmm. there's been a, I think, especially in the past, you know, decade um, or so due to the, the strength of um, the feminist movement and really amplifying these types of abuses that 
sometimes there is no witness a lot of the time and abusers mm. are very intentional about um, when and how they abuse um, and building up their image and reputation in a way that people often discredit uh, the victim um, or think that the abuser is incapable of doing these things because of how they mm. present themselves in public. Yeah. Um, so I just see a lot of common threads with emotional abuse and sexual abuse and that um, taking the autonomy away from another person, mm -hmm. making sure that the other person conforms and molds and shapes themselves into what the abuser wants them to be. And so I see this as a form of objectification where whether it's obvious sexual objectification or it's that covert objectification of you are not allowed to be a unique and independent human being with your own needs and wants and desires. And so I am going to instead mm. control you to fit what I want from you. So when I think more specifically about sexual abuse and the normalization that occurs, I think that is unique, um, particularly in the church and some of the kind of sexual ethics that many mm -hmm. Christian folks are taught early on. Um, and sometimes we receive this message and there's such a range again, depending on what denomination you grow up and what the culture is. So it's hard to paint a super broad brush of the messaging. Um, but I think in general, we get this message that um, anything sexual within marriage is mm -hmm. acceptable. Yeah. Um, and so because of that and because of the silence and the taboo nature around sexuality and the fears of if we talk too much about sexuality, then we're going to entice people to want to yeah. have sex, that type of thing. Um, what happens is that silence and not talking about it makes people more vulnerable to sexual mm -hmm. abuse, as well as all other forms of abuse. Um, and so we don't equip people with the language to describe healthy experiences of sexuality and relationships and unhealthy and abusive yeah. forms. So that creates this environment where um, sexual coercion is either not talked about or it's expected where mm -hmm. um, we're taught a lot of these sexist messages that like men desire sex more or they're entitled to sex. And that is a, like a duty that a partner must perform. Um, and sex is seen as um, rather than a, a, a mutual expression um it is seen as still hierarchical in nature mm -hmm. and um and oftentimes that um the equity and experience and the prioritizing of both people's pleasure and both people's autonomy um yeah. is discredited so that creates this 
foundation of toxicity, I would say. Yeah. Thank you for that. I, um, I was really interested in this dynamic when reading your contribution to create it to thrive. Um, and I'm going to get to a question. It just might take me a second to get there. I think although there is so many different avenues we could talk about in what you just brought up and it's so rich, I think one that I'm particularly interested in is, um, how ill-equipped we are pastorally to not even just address abuse, but to acknowledge it and to know what, when, what we see, like when you were talking about how, like not talking about healthy sexual expressions of our sexuality, even within theological commitments, um, we don't talk about healthy versus unhealthy. And I think part of that's because what you just gestured towards is it's not just the people getting married and then the victims can't do that or can't, can't acknowledge and, kind of understand what's happening. I think we also have an impoverished pastoral understanding of um, sexuality because it's not just a lack of representation and discussion, but also a lot of our pastors have been formed and raised and discipled in the same ways that their lay people have. Um, So all of that to say, I wonder if you could talk about why um, our maybe a contemporary or widespread understanding of consent is impoverished, especially in um, like uh, maybe especially in marriage or committed partnerships and also why um, an expansion of that understanding is really important in a pastoral context. Yeah, I think with a lot of groups that I've spoken to um, and the work that I've done with survivors, um, what people see as sexual violence in general is a really narrow definition. And oftentimes it is kind of what people see in the media. Oftentimes a stranger perpetrated rape that is maybe even out in the open um, where there's witnesses and things like that. And kind of a very sensationalized um, version, uh, which again happens. And like, you know, and that brought up too, that, you know, they, sometimes we focus a lot more on the more sensationalized or the more extreme versions and those absolutely happen again. Um, but what we miss in that discussion is the, again, the more common normalized forms of abuse. Mm -hmm. So when people learn that sexual coercion is anything that, um, involves controlling the behavior of another person, whether that's sexual, physical, emotional, financial, anything along those lines. Um, then that includes pressuring, guilting, obligating, whining, um, spiritual abuse, taking scripture and using that to bully people into mm-hmm. submission. Um, those are all forms of sexual coercion, which is also the definition of sexual assault is any type of yeah. sexual coercion. So then on the other hand, when we hear this term consent, I'll ask people, what does that mean to you when um, you think of sexual consent? And people often say, well, it means saying yes or agreeing to something. And um, that that is a you know surface level definition, um, and that can be a starting point to a conversation um, about mutual agreement and mutual desire. But like you're saying, Blake, um, we have to go so much deeper, and I think yeah. our 
our theological beliefs and our Christian ethics um, demand a much higher standard than just agreeing. So um, what many um, survivors have shared and um, people in the the anti-violence movement talk about the ways that because of oppression and patriarchy and colonization and racism and all of these systems, people are often, um, especially marginalized and subordinated groups, they are in a position where they are forced to agree to things they don't want to do all the time. Mm -hmm. And so that makes a yes or agreement um, really complex and yeah. some people could argue meaningless when you can't say no. So consent, um, I, I really like to complicate uh, the mm-hmm. definition of that um, and bring in that context because we don't make choices in a vacuum. And we're looking at status. We're looking at power differentials. We're looking at oppression. And I think particularly in the case within the church, What I see a lot is when there's clergy abuse, um, people will call this an affair or a Mm. mistake or sin um, rather than seeing it as abuse. Um, Mm -hmm. And and when we're talking about abuse, this has to do with a power inequity. And so if a person that is in a clergy position, a therapist, a police officer, really anybody in an authority position, someone under that um, authority or spiritual care of another person, because of that power and inequity, that is intrinsically abusive. You can't consent in that situation. So that in and of itself is abusive because someone is taking advantage of the power that they have over a person in their care. And they can't ever know if that person actually wants to do that thing because of the hierarchy. Um, So context really matters. And that is um, what we always have to take into account. Yeah. No, thank, thank you, you for that. that. Um, I hope our listeners, uh, some people I think are maybe hearing about some of this stuff, maybe for the first time. And uh, we just want to thank you again for your contributions. Order CBE's most recently published book, Created to Thrive, Creating Abuse-Free Faith Communities. Created to Thrive brings together the voices of experts and faith leaders to tackle topics related to abuse. Born out of a desire to equip pastors and Christian leaders to respond wisely to create safe spaces where all can flourish, Created to Thrive explores the dangerous consequences of women's devaluation and how skewed theology can perpetuate abuse. Created to Thrive will help you to understand and address domestic and church abuse, gain best practices for creating abuse-free spaces, and to respond wisely to reports of violence. Buy now through CBE's online bookstore at cbeinternational.christianbook.com. Nanette, I want to lob this one at you because I know for me, reading your chapter on double abuse was so powerful and such an eye-opener because I work in college ministry, I've worked in youth ministry for over 20 years, and as someone who is 
working with folks in this world, I do not want to be someone who contributes to to doubling up that abuse. And um, so I would love for you to share with our listeners uh, a little bit about what double abuse is um, based on your definitions uh, that you, you work on in the book, and then sure. also how our responses can contribute uh, inadvertently to the suffering of a survivor. Hmm. Yeah. Well, um, if you just uh, quickly, let me just touch on this first. Yes. That- you know, when when you consider the Harvey Weinstein cases, mm-hmm. um, the Dr. Larry Nasser cases, where in both of these situations, or Ravi Zacharias, another one, where multiple victims come forward, and then the institution itself does not support them, it um, doubles down and protects the perpetrator. And the process, like like in the US in the USA gymnasts. Um, it was Michigan State University and USA Gymnastics that not only did not believe them, but uh, pressured them to be grateful to have been treated by such an esteemed physician, um, completely denying and distorting their claims. And so when, when when victims finally find the courage to speak up or reach out for help, and then by those people that Rebecca was just mentioning, there's a particular thing that happens when the people that they're confiding in are people in positions of authority or power or influence. Um, Like a family member could be a matriarch or a patriarch and carry influence. And when these people do things like not believe them, um, talk down to them, give them instructions, criticize them, Oftentimes, victims are given ultimatums. If you don't leave him, then I'll never talk to you again. Or if you don't stay with your husband, I will never talk to you again. When they give these ultimatums, and then if the victim does not comply, knowing that these ultimatums are unhealthy, they're not the best choice for them, then they are often ostracized. It could be ostracized by their family, by their church, or even their professional community. And we often do this with um, victims. To the second part of your question, we we interrogate them or we say, we ask pointed or leading questions like, well, did you try this? Well, did you say that? Well, why? I would have said, you know, we start talking down to them and forgetting that they are and equal to us and they're more knowledgeable about their specific situation than we will ever be. And no two abuse situations are exactly alike. So what I... What I encourage is for, even if you don't want to become an expert on abuse, but let's say you're a pastor in a church that's then going to hand that person off to a more appropriate um, staff member or pastor that can serve abuse, you want to do these simple steps. Hmm. And the first one is listen, listen, just listen, listen, take yourself off the hook. You don't have to do talking. So often we think, that we have to talk and provide solutions and answers. And really, it's just traumatizes a victim to be interrupted or to be interrogated. It's better to show that you are a patient listener. Believe the story to be true. Only 3% of um, sexual assault victims um, have been shown in studies to lie. So most often, the story is going to be true. And um, I say, validate them. Mm-hmm. You know, you what you whatever happened you do not deserve to be treated this way 
um, encourage mm -hmm. them. I believe in you. You're going to get through this. Okay. I'll walk alongside of you. You can ask one question. How can I help you? What can I do to help you right now? Most people are afraid to ask that question because they think the victim's going to say, can I move into your house for a year? Instead of maybe that they just need an advocate yeah. to go with them to their attorney's office, yeah. someone to show up with them in court or someone to help them connect them to a um, domestic violence agency. Um, it could be very simple things. Um, and so I just really encourage that you can find this in the book, Created to Thrive, or on the MEND Project website, yeah. we have what we call our healing model of compassion. And I, I want to emphasize that victims, um, studies show that 50% of victims will first reach out to their pastor or their therapist before they wow. ever even recognize their need to reach out to a domestic violence service provider. Wow. And so our churches and our therapists need to be trained on this stuff because mm -hmm. the risk of doing harm is so great. And when your church pastor harms you, when they mischaracterize you, uh, and churches will tend to say that they tend to place the value on the institution of marriage more than the victim and the children inside the marriage. So there's a lot of pressure to stay in a marriage. Um, regardless of how harmful it is. And so when these kinds of pressures are placed on you by a, your, your community, your church community, where you identify your personhood yeah. is firmly rooted in that identity, it actually undermines their identity and leads them to a sense of hopelessness and despair, yeah. which um, Dr. Judith Herman talks a lot about how the sense of loss of identity, hopelessness, and despair leads to complex post-traumatic stress disorder, which is a much more serious form of trauma to overcome. And so double abuse could be relatively mild in some cases, but if you're dealing with somebody who has post-traumatic stress and you doubly abuse them, you are potentially exacerbating their trauma into something much more, more much more serious. So yeah. that is the reason why we double abuse to me had to have a name yeah. because how can you stop what doesn't have yeah. a name when it's causing so much harm? Yeah, absolutely. And and I, I really appreciated that in the book and now, now it has a name and, and, and as a, as a minister and working with other ministers and with, with those in higher ed, um, this yeah. is just such a valuable resource. Both of your uh, contributions have given us so many practical tools yeah. uh, to be better, and, and we appreciate that. Can I just say that we, we train churches on um, abuse yeah. and double abuse, mm -hmm. um, and so if anybody um, knows once they're church trained or if you're a pastor at a church and you would like, we have a comprehensive training that has been vetted by multiple psychologists and academicians and so forth. And so I just really encourage you to reach out to us. Yeah. And we'll put the, um, it, and that's through the MEND project. It is. All right. And so we'll put a link in the bio um, to your website and to some contact info so we can make that easy for anybody that's listening. Thank you. Yeah. I, um, man, I really wish we had way more time because I have about 30 follow-up questions for both of you. <laughs> um, and I, I want to say before I ask this final question, thank you for, 
um, the ways that both you have shared and the ways you haven't shared for um, the work that you do and why you do it and your um, your commitment to um, the people who need um, advocates in our faith communities in particular in our world at large. And thank you for um, giving things names and for doing the research and for um, equipping our faith communities to be um, safer and more Christ-like in that way. Um, my final question for you is why should folks buy or read or share created to thrive? We can start with Rebecca. Well, something that I, I was really excited about with just this project of writing and, and CVE creating this book, Mm. um, is that CBE is one of the rare organizations, I think, that um, is honest about the roots of violence. And as someone that has worked um, primarily in um, non-faith-based organizations, um, you know, whether social justice organizations or higher education, um, there is constantly a, a pressure in a way to not address the roots of violence and to instead only talk about the surface level behaviors. Mm. Because once we get to the roots of violence, um, that can get controversial, that can get Mm. at our core belief systems, that can get political. And what I mean by political is not partisan politics, but Um, an analysis of power and privilege and how it's distributed and how we need to redistribute it. Um, And so I think about um, Dr. Mimi and what she, what she talks about. um, She repeats this phrase a lot in her writing and speaking of quote, ideas have consequences and Mm -hmm. how much CBE, um, helps people understand how true that is. When we look at theological beliefs and patriarchy and complementarianism um, and how these belief systems um, make it easier to abuse, easier to get away with it, um, it becomes really clear, I think, um, and has this effect um on people where when we're when we really care about ending violence and abuse um that provokes some really uncomfortable questions for all of us and that may cause us to change some of our deeply held beliefs about um, relationships about gender about sexuality um and so this book I think does a really incredible job of not only talking about domestic violence, but Mm. why, why is there domestic violence? Why do people Mm. abuse and how do we stop that and how do we prevent it? Um, So this is a really unique resource and I haven't found anything quite like it, um, especially within kind of Christian based texts. Um, that really gives such a wide range of um, abuse and what it looks like, but also the causes of it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Thank you. Annette, will you share? Sure. Well, um, I think 
for me, I have to ditto what Rebecca's saying that I have not found a book that's as comprehensive mm-hmm. as this in uh, Christian circles. Um, but I think some a real reason to read this book is because um, you, you may not become an expert on abuse, but it's going to give you a well-rounded view mm-hmm. of the many facets that support abuse that play into abuse it's going to uncover your own unconscious biases that um, interfere with properly assisting victims particularly those already in marginalized communities but victims in general whether um the victim is from is white and in a well-to-do socioeconomic position they still face so many biases. Mm -hmm. I just think that this book does a lot to uncover biases that uh, victims, victims face so many biases. And it's, it's not always intentional. It's unintentional. It's, you know, by unconscious biases are just that they're unconscious. There are some conscious biases. Yes, they exist. And it's, it's, very sad, but it's true. And so we need to be able to identify that and name it for what it is. But I think this is helpful in uncovering the unconscious biases that we are, we all are at risk of participating in. Agreed. And if I may add, um, I think also another really great reason to pick up Created to Thrive is to be connected to people who are doing the work like you two, um, organizations mm-hmm. like MEND, um, and connected to ways to get trained in your, um, in your particular contexts. And we really appreciate you coming, but also contributing and offering your voices and your expertise for whoever may pick up the book. Um, and yes. we encourage you, if you're listening to go get the book, we're going to put a, um, link in the bio to CBE's bookstore so you can get it. And then once you read it, um, to get connected to the organizations and the people and the contributors that are a part of it. So you can um, be not only more educated, but that can lead you to fruitful and protective action for those that are in your care or in proximity to you. And we just want to thank all of our listeners for joining us today as well. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you subscribe to the podcast so that you can hear weekly from our co-hosts as we develop content on gender theology for the gospel empowerment of both men and women. And be sure to follow CBE International on Facebook and Twitter. And you should also probably go to their website, www.cbeinternational.org for even more content. Subscribe to their blog, their magazine, in their journal. We would love to thank Landon, our support tech, and the team at CBE International that makes this podcast possible. I'm Blake Dean with my co-host Aaron Lones. More mutuality matters. Thanks for listening. Looking for more information about CBE and our mission for biblical equality? Then please visit cbeinternational.org for more information. And please be sure to tune in each week for new episodes here or wherever else you listen to podcasts.